and welcome to the Respiratory Guru, the home of the genuinely useful respiratory updates. My name is Diana Kavanagh and I am a respiratory consultant working in the West Midlands. So the aim of this podcast is to try to summarise this month's clinically relevant respiratory research to keep you up to date with the latest evidence and guidelines to ensure you're delivering the best care for your patients and ticking that CPD box. I personally work full time and I'm a mum and a farmer's wife and so I find it incredibly hard to carve out any time in my day to read for example The Lancet and then even when I do it feels like a slightly disappointing endeavour as it never seems to be particularly relevant to my clinical practice. So I was looking for a podcast that would summarise all of the respiratory updates for me and couldn't find it so I tackled the situation head on and created my own. Luckily for some reason each month there tends to be a theme for it the recent coming out. I've also worked with some excellent clinicians who have been very generous with their time and happy to be interviewed by me in said area. I don't know about you, but these days with so many subspecialities in respiratory, I feel increasingly and embarrassingly de-skilled in many areas. So if you feel the same as me, then this is the podcast for you as I ask all the silly questions that you might not feel comfortable asking. So today we're going to be covering the tricky subject of aspergillosis and to help me go through this in some more detail I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Chris Cosmidis. I probably said that wrong um, but over to you Chris would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you Diana thanks for having me on the podcast I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So um, as an introduction, um, I have to say I'm an infectious diseases physician. I'm not a respiratory doctor. So um, my background is general medicine. And uh, I was trained in um, internal medicine in Greece and then infectious diseases in the United States. After that, I went to the UK and did some microbiology and ID after that. Mm-hmm. And since 2014, I've been working at the National Aspergillosis Center. So a large part of my work is dedicated to treating aspergillosis, all syndromes of aspergillosis, which we will talk about uh, later on. Um, I also have an interest in infections in the immunocompromised. So there is some overlap with fungal disease, of course, especially patients with transplant and, of course, general infectious diseases and TB as well. And since 2018, I have been a senior lecturer in the University of Manchester. So uh, that's my main um, my main position, but I do 50% clinical work, of course. And my research is also focused around mainly pathogenesis of chronic pulmonary spergillosis as treatment with new antifungal agents. Brilliant. Thank you for that. So to start off with, and I think you'll hopefully explain this to us in more detail, but I'd like to start with ABPA because that is what I see the most of as, as a generalist. So we're going to talk about hopefully CPA, so chronic pulmonary aspergillosis and um, invasive aspergillosis. But to start off with ABPA, um, that's what I see, I guess, most, most frequently in clinic, as it were. Can I let you, first of all, tell me about your understanding, your definition of ABPA? Thanks, Diana. So um, it manifests as poor control of asthma. So um, from the point of view of seeing a patient with poorly controlled asthma, they have to suspect ABPA, which complicates maybe approximately 3% of people with asthma. Um, I'm not sure how many percent of patients with severe asthma, but obviously with severe asthma, it will be more prevalent. So you have to suspect ABPA in a patient whose asthma is not well controlled. In which case, then you have to send an Aspergillus IgE, which is the screening test for ABPA. If they don't have Aspergillus IgE, they cannot have 
BPA by definition because they are not sensitized to aspergillus, so there's no problem. If somebody is sensitized to aspergillus, which, as you know, a lot of patients with severe asthma will be, uh, then you need some additional criteria. You need to show that this is actually causing an impact, which is arbitrarily an aspergillus IgE more than a thousand. This has been in the guidelines, so sometimes it could be 900, sometimes it could be 5,000, sometimes it could be very high. And these patients also tend to have a positive aspergillus IgG and usually peripheral eosinophilia as well. So that's the serology side, of course, but you definitely need some specific criteria, clinical criteria that they have. So the one is poor control of the asthma, but these patients typically get flares which consist of productive thick sputum. They usually describe it as gray glue inconsistency and they say that they bring up mucus plugs the description that they mention and they get quite unwell systemically so with fatigue and sometimes chest pains sometimes sweats so they appear quite ill and what happens usually they end up having one week courses in antibiotics of steroids and antibiotics by their GP they get a little bit better then after a few days they're back for more so that's mm-hmm. usually when it's suspected and treated uh, and the other very important distinctive um, feature is the findings on the chest x-ray mm-hmm. which is described as the fleeting infiltrate so this is usually because of the mucus plugging and antelectasis that forms. And then you see something that is quite suspicious for pneumonia or even for cancer sometimes. And mm-hmm. patients have ended up having biopsy only to find that there is just an eosinophilic infiltrate uh, caused by ABPA or even sometimes lobectomies or, or uh, you no know, treatment for, for presumed cancer. But um, these are typically infiltrates that respond after steroid courses. So you could have an infiltrate on the right side and then disappears after steroid treatment and then you get another infiltrate on the left side so this is quite a distinctive picture and on the on CT scan you will see central bronchiectasis that's the other typical feature that develops uh, over time these are the um, I think that the overall clinical picture of somebody with ABPA okay so sorry you said about the IgE being greater than a thousand is that the total IgE or is that the specific aspergillus IgE that needs to, once you've sort of, I got the impression from, uh, I think it was actually from watching one of your world aspergillosis YouTube videos that asthma, you're right. And then the aspergillus IgE. And then if that's positive, is it the aspergillus IgE that's greater than a thousand or is it your total IgE greater than a thousand? The, the total IgE has to be more than a thousand. Total. Is- yeah. I think historically this is what has been considered, but of course you don't have to have that as a criterion that's definitely, sometimes it could be less than that, mm-hmm. the patient has had steroids recently, or it could be sometimes a lot, lot higher. Yes. 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 IgE. Now there is a bit of problem with the definition, so what is a positive Aspergillus IgE? If you see your laboratory or your, your uh, laboratory, how they report it, mm-hmm. a positive may be something that's higher than 0.4. Limits, so that's probably not very high. If you have a 0.8, is that enough to cause such a severe disease? You know, I usually tend to, to like to see a bit higher aspergillus IgE than just uh, just above the cutoff. Yes, I know what you mean. If you're just generally an allergic kind of person, just an, an allergic asthma, I always say that they'll come back allergic to anything that we send, whatever panel it is. And and doesn't mean to say that 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 is their specific driver of their disease. Yes, yeah. we, we do see people that have got kind of minor levels of, of everything we send if they've got that phenotype fine so the IgE greater than the thousand and then there's the so I wanted to ask you about the IgG aspergillus because 
I get really confused with this and I think I've overthought it. I think I've, I've tried to do too much reading about what IgG actually represent. And, and now I'm really confused whether it represents some sort of sensitization or invasion. And could you put into context for me what the, what we're looking at when we see a positive IgG aspergillus in an ABPA picture? Yes, I mean, the IgG is a bit debatable what it means. The, the, uh, the problem is that it is not very specific. So, uh, for example, if you take I know, maybe I know, consecutive patients with COPD, since you test their aspergillus IgG, you will find that a lot of them will have positive aspergillus IgG. Um, maybe more so in bronchiectasis than COPD, but you, you can see that without them having any specific alarm symptoms. So it denotes some form of immune response to aspergillus, for example, aspergillus present in the tissues, does not necessarily mean invasion, which is, we understand it as angio-invasion, and that is the invasive aspergillosis, which we will cover later on. Um, so a positive aspergillus IgG does not represent invasive disease. Okay. May present a high burden of aspergillus in the airways. For example, the classical example is the aspergilloma. So if you have an large aspergilloma in a cavity, which we will cover later on as part of chronic aspergillosis. Mm -hmm. These patients tend to have very high aspergillus IgG, sometimes off the scale, very, very high levels, which means there is some local immune reaction to this yeah. fungal presence, either in the airways, or sometimes there could be some uh, local infiltration of, of a hyphae, fungal hyphae in the superficial, in the tissues, but not really invasion into the bloodstream. In ABPA has also been linked with positive aspergillus IgG, mm. so, but it's not the sensitization. It's probably some other reaction, again, because of the aspergillus baby in the airway in large concentrations and not being able to be removed. Because the, the, the defect in ABPA is essentially that we're not able to clear the mm. aspergillus from the airways, as yeah. normal people would do, normal, normal immune function. But if you have somebody who cannot clear aspergillus for some reason, mm -hmm. then this just stays there and causes all this sensitization and, and the reaction and inflammation. Yeah, thank you. That makes a lot that makes a lot more sense to me. Thank you. So again, it might have come from one of these world aspergillosis lectures, which I will put the link on for anybody that's interested, because uh, they're quite good at covering all bases. But someone did a nice thing about, so if you've got your, your total IgE greater than 1,000, and then that takes you down to the next category, which is if you've then got a skin prick test positive, eosinophilia, IgG aspergillus or aspergillus precipitans, two out of four of those things in total then takes you on to the next level, which is, you know, you've got ABPA and then it's do a HRCT and then it's and then that differentiates between ABPA seropositive, it's called, and then ABPA with bronchiectasis. So that was quite a nice sort of waffling a bit. But I remember when I was doing my uh, my exit exam some time ago, there was like five criteria. And I'm sure some of that was minor and major as well. But this was just two out of four of those criteria means that you've probably definitely got ABPA. Yeah, that's right. Fair. Well, I think serology is one thing, but... As you will see, a lot of patients may have positive serology and they don't seem to be affected by it. I think that's a typical example is we'll get some referrals with patients with very severe COPD, bullous emphysema, and they tend to have very, very high total IgE and they may be sensitized to uh, aspergillus as well. They may have aspergillus IgG. This 
does not mean they have ABPA. I think it is an assessment of how it is affecting them, which is the definition of it is poor control of asthma. So they would be presenting as, as poorly controlled asthma. Sometimes they may have no symptoms, but in the, in the context of severe COPD, they may have this sensitization, but it mm-hmm. may not mean necessarily ABPA. For ABPA, you would need the clinical presentation of recurrent flares needing steroids, typically needing steroids continuously. Mm. Uh, so if somebody is not requiring steroids at all for years, mm. then you probably cannot call it ABPA because that's the essentially they have not really had any impact. Um, and the definition of ABPA is that the patient will have AB, uh, asthma or CF. These are yeah. the two conditions. Although having said that, I have seen patients with COPD who have no formal diagnosis of asthma, who then end with this picture and they might benefit from steroids and antifungals. So definitely it exists outside the strict diagnosis of asthma, maybe. Okay, but no, I like that. I think I think most of us can can work with that framework that it's just the the kind of the overall clinical picture and not just by going by what the the numbers say, as it were. Okay, I was going to move on to management next of ABPA. Do you want to say anything else? about ABPA before we move on, you know, with respect to diagnostics and things like that? No, I think that that's, that's fine. I think it's uh, mainly the clinic suspicion, clinical suspicion in, in addition with the serology yep. and the imaging findings. Fabulous. Okay, so with ABPA, I used to think when I was a registrar slash early consultant that you started off by giving steroids and if that doesn't work you moved on to antifungals and then I got really thrown because we had a case of someone that had ABPA and it was probably turning into um, IA so invasive aspergillosis which you can go into because she had the halo sign on the CT scan and my, my colleague was like, no, I put everyone on steroids and antifungals. And I was like, oh, God, I've been doing this. I've been doing this wrong for years. I've been giving a trial of one and then the other. We'll come on to a bit of research, actually, that talks about this. And, and so, some of the research that's active in, I think it's in the ERJ, actually made me feel a bit better because I think this is a question that is testing whether you should use one or the other. Well, one or both. So what I wanted to ask you was that from your point of view for the management of ABPA, steroids and or itraconazole, can you give us your um, guidance about how we should be managing the the bog standard ABPA patients, as it were? You have to treat an ABPA flare, which is when they present with worsening symptoms and arise in the total IgE. So if you know what is a baseline IgE, it usually doubles during a flare. And then they have also the, the symptoms that we mentioned before. So then the first line of treatment is steroids. And the steroids work. So if you see all the studies that K-series are describing, you know, they, they say all patients responded to steroids. Steroids are, are very effective in ABPA. What you have to do is treat for longer. So uh, as I said before, very often they would be prescribed one week of steroids in primary care that only makes them a little bit worse and then they flare up again. So we usually prescribe at least a couple of weeks of full dose, maybe half a milligram per kilo of of prednisolone for two weeks and then you taper gradually over a few weeks, maybe six weeks, sometimes have to take longer depending on the response. And by the way, about the dose of steroids, this was uh, this is the dose that is accepted because there was a study that compared this dose with a higher dose of 0.75 milligrams per kilo of steroids and there was no benefit with a higher dose, just more side effects. So we start with this dose of steroids, maybe 40 milligrams mm-hmm. daily, for, but you probably continue that for two weeks before you start tapering. And then you could then taper and stop the steroids If the patient is well, then they are in remission and you can observe them. So the role of the 
antifungals. There was, uh, as you said before, maybe you start steroids and if it doesn't work, you start antifungals, but usually steroids will work. What is then the role of the antifungal is as a steroid sparing agent. If you see that this patient then goes back on steroids after a few weeks again or becomes steroid dependent, this is when you use the antifungals. And what is mostly known is about itraconazole. Steroids are very effective at preventing exacerbations and allowing a patient to come off the steroids. A study that compared them head to head, and a lot of these studies come from India, actually, in that study yeah. is also from India, comparing steroids with itraconazole. Yeah. Uh, head to head, it, the study found that the patients on steroids achieved a reduction in the total IgE faster, but then eventually all patients were to, into remission after mm-hmm. several weeks. So it could be traconazole also works instead of steroids. Some patients may do not want to have steroids for maybe side effects. And I don't know, some patients are reluctant to have steroids at all. That could be another approach. You can just start with traconazole, although it could be that it might take longer to respond. But definitely steroid, uh, traconazole works well as a um, steroid-bearing regimen. Mm-hmm. We usually continue that for a few months. Most studies have used four months of itraconazole, then if you continue for longer, then there is always the risk, of course, of toxicity, which is adrenaline sufficiency, neuropathy, uh, heart failure. So all these you have to take into account. Of course, we have patients in reality that remain on itraconazole long term for years and years because they stop it and then they get a relapse, a BPA. So they, they, they choose to stay on itraconazole uh, indefinitely, which is sometimes what is needed. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful, especially about the um, 0.5 milligrams versus 0.75 milligrams. That's, yeah, a really useful piece of knowledge for us. So, yeah, so while we're on that study, as it were, so I'll get, I'll put the link on the podcast info. It was a randomized control trial of prednisolone versus pred and itraconazole in acute ABPA complicating asthma. So you're right, it was it was in it was Indian. There was 191 patients randomized. And what they said was that the rate, the exacerbation rate in the group that had itraconazole and prednisolone was 20%. But if you had just prednisolone, it was 33%. So it was a it was a higher exacerbation rate if you just had um, prednisolone than if you had the, the the two combined. And then they also said that there was a significant reduction in the total IgE as well in the, the group that had the combined um, medication. So that did help me feel more confident with adding in itraconazole. But I'm glad that my nervousness prior to this to do steroids first and then itraconazole wasn't me not knowing enough. That was appropriate. But good to know about the difference sorry I'm just using this as therapy because you, 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 you as a respiratory consultant a lot of the time you're, you're you're working in relative isolation so this is very helpful for the listeners as well so measuring response I think that's why my sometimes my colleagues uh, will ask questions about that obviously clinical is the is king in, in terms of measuring their response to treatment so their exacerbation rates on the steroids and or itraconazole. In terms of, do you use any other biomarkers, as it were, to measure response to ABPA? For example, CT scans, serology, etc. Do you use them, you know, um, definitely or is it predominantly clinical that you use? Well, um, total IgE is the main marker, mm-hmm. what has been used in studies. So some studies used a 35% reduction in total IgE, others used a 50% reduction 
in total IgE. So th this is the marker you have to use, the total IgE. The Aspergillus IgE or the IgG have not been shown to correlate that much with response. So it's probably not that useful. So if you want to check just one parameter, it will be the Aspergillus IgE. Of course, then if you have infiltrates on the x-ray, definitely use the next ray to make sure that they clear. And of course, the clinical improvement, which usually goes together with the radiological and the serological response. So um, once you have achieved remission, then it makes sense to repeat the serology every few months, maybe every six months to a year. I think it's important for your listeners to, to mention that some ABPA flares are asymptomatic. So it is it, sometimes you might find that there is a rise, doubling of the total Ig while the patient is well. And then also you might find some X-ray infiltrate. So it could be that some of the some flares are actually asymptomatic, which probably again you have to treat them, especially if there are X-ray findings. Oh, that's interesting. So I thought you were going to say that you wouldn't treat them. Like so, say if you book the patient in for some blood tests and then you get the results back and they show that there has been for example a doubling of the total IgE and or the sorry I wasn't quite sure if you said the 50% reduction in the total IgE or the aspergillus IgE or both um, the total IgE that we so, use for markers of response or fine. a flare it's total so yeah so sorry so say if they've got yeah say if you do that you put them in for some blood tests and you get the results back to show that their total IgE has gone up my instinct would be to call them and see how they're getting on and then correlate the blood results with the clinical picture are you saying that actually when it comes to ABPA if they've got a serological and radiological evidence of relapse, you should you should treat that, you know, not not excluding the clinical history, but if they're asymptomatic, but their numbers say that it's 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 they're having going into a relapse, you would treat that. Well, I think if they have X-ray findings as well, new infiltrates, uh, have quite high eosinophilia, probably you would treat them versus yeah. that with, with a course of steroids, I, I guess. Um, I think in reality, they might have some symptoms. Uh, if they're entirely asymptomatic and the X-ray is unchanged, if there is just a ra raise of the total IgE, I think you maybe just monitor that. I think it's a combination of things as well. I think the X-ray is important. But it's important not to forget to do an X-ray. Yes. Having a you know, raise in total IgE, maybe good to have an X-ray as well. Uh, so I did my MD in CT scans, and I'd love having 300 pictures inside someone's chest to see what's going on inside. And I will probably excessively book CT scans. But you said chest X-ray, and I'm sure my radiological, my radiology department will thank you for recommending chest X-rays over CTs. But I worry about them being insensitive in, in, in the, you know, as in like, yeah. But chest X-rays is your, you know, generally your radiological imaging of choice, as long as it's comparing like for like, as it were? Well, I think, well, if there is um, doubt as to the diagnosis, you may have to have a CT scan, of course. But I think typically the ABPA flare is, is uh, you can observe it on an X-ray because of the, those um, infiltration, atelectasis and mucus impaction. But I wouldn't necessarily do a CT scan. If I know, I would treat them for ABPA anyway. If you think that it's a different diagnosis, like sometimes there is a suspicion for cancer sometimes with those infiltrates or... or uh, other process, so then we end up having a CT scan. And of course, you like to maybe quantify the bronchiectasis as well. So mm -hmm. you might do a CT scan. I think the patients eventually have a CT scan as part of the staging to see what, how mm -hmm. extensive the bronchiectasis. And they may have to have that repeated also down the line. Again, mm -hmm. because of the suspicion of conversion to chronic aspergillosis. So if you're suspecting a cavity forming mm -hmm. with an aspergilloma, then again, you need a CT scan to look at that. 
Okay. And then the final thing I wanted to mention was, again, because this podcast is about um, research updates so that hopefully it's useful to all kind of practitioners. There was a recent paper in the ERJ. Again, this was French, actually, unusually, uh, June uh, of this year, ERJ. And this was looking at nebulized amphotericin as maintenance therapy in ABPA patients. They enrolled 174 patients, 139 of which um, were entered into the study after they'd been stabilised with four months worth of treatment with steroids and itraconazole. And the primary outcome the paper was looking for was the occurrence of the first severe clinical exacerbation rate within 24 months following randomization. And what they found was that in the amphotericin nebulized group, 50% of patients met the primary outcome of the occurrence of a severe clinical exacerbation. And in the placebo group, basically it was the same. 51% um, had a severe exacerbation. So 50 versus 51, it wasn't significant. So the conclusion of this study, this French study, was that maintenance therapy after you've finished your steroids and itraconazole with nebulized amphotericin did not reduce the risk of severe clinical exacerbations. And that was it. So, yeah, this I don't know if you're in the practice of considering giving maintenance antifungals, but does the results of this study surprise you or or not? Do they back up what you already would practice, what you already felt? Well, um, we use it in a different setting. We have to clarify that this study uses liposomal amphotericin B. This is the ambisome. Ah. In most settings, we use conventional amphotericin B, which is called fungizone. So this is there may be a difference in tolerability. We see also that patients with asthma are less likely to tolerate it, which is the, this patient population we're talking about. This drug is tolerated a lot better in patients, for example, transplant patients who are on prophylaxis. They tolerate it a lot better as they don't have asthma usually. So in ABPA, I, we found in our practice that it is not very well tolerated, which mm-hmm. that means that they were not going to stay on, on several months of, of treatment. But the study, I think, showed that Actually, although the exacerbation eventually happened, actually it was delayed. So being mm-hmm. on aphotericin B may have prevented flares. Mm-hmm. In general, we use it if we are not able to use azoles because of toxicity or because of resistance. So then we, we resort, we, we, we give it a, a go with uh, aphotericin B for a few months. So this can also be considered. Again, you have to challenge the patient under the supervision of a physiotherapist who is experienced in this and uh, to make sure they don't get bronchospasm. We often have to prescribe uh, salbutamol as well to, to precede it. So uh, then the patients may feel better because of that, not because of the amphotericin. So uh, it's a bit equivocal whether it, it helps. It's, it's also a bit um, onerous for the patients. They have to, to use it quite takes a long time to prepare it and, and administer it. Of course, some patients do see benefits, so it's something to consider as a last resort. You cannot use antifungals if the patient has had a lot of toxicity with steroids. And finally, the other thing to mention is also biologics. So uh, these biologics, again, as I said, uh, I'm not a respiratory physician, so I, I discuss with our severe asthma colleagues here who would administer this medication. So, of course, they, they have certain criteria for severe mm-hmm. asthma. And, of course, the ABPA will get better as well. 
Mm-hmm. And this could be, uh, I think, most of the uh, biologics used for asthma, I mm-hmm. think, will also benefit the ABPA. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I will direct the listeners to the asthma podcast where we discuss about we discuss all the biologics with one of our local professors so yeah thank you thank you very much so that was the first part of our conversation about aspergillosis and as you can see we spent a good 25 minutes talking about ABPA so I thought the listeners deserved a break and therefore I have divided this aspergillosis podcast into two parts Please join in for part two, where you can listen to the second part of our conversation, where we will be discussing chronic pulmonary aspergillosis and invasive aspergillosis in more detail. If you liked what you heard today, then please do disseminate to your peers and colleagues and leave a review and hit subscribe. Thank you very much. Thank you.